I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's headlines in the world of defense acquisition. So let's get into it. First one we got here is Space Force unveils its vision for a digital service from the United United States Space Force. Quote, acknowledging that space is the only physical domain without humans in place to conduct military operations, the digital vision document states, quote, everything our operators experience is derived through data received from space and our ability to rapidly analyze that data to our advantage, end quote. So I think this one is pretty interesting because, of course, I guess the Space Force personnel are pretty much going to be experiencing everything behind a console of one type or another. So you would think that this is the service more than any other that really has to be digitally native. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it definitely not that the other warfighting domains don't have critical need for data. I think JADC2 and some of those things show how important data is for kind of everything. But I think for space, it's really, we're in the data collection business. There's not, there's not a lot of kinetic effects. And so most of it is situational awareness and being able to characterize what things are where and what they can do and all of that. So I think the, the biggest product, the biggest value that we provide today is data for the intelligence community and for for operational users. Yeah, it definitely does make sense to to have to have a have the service be be digital from the start. And yeah, you have to really admire the vision. I think it's I think it the document says all the right things. Some of the efforts that are underway to create a digital engineering ecosystem are, are very promising. I read that there's supposed to come out with an initial capability this year for that. So that will be interesting to see. They're actually looking at picking three, three programs within the uh, space portfolio around SATCOM, three, three of the jam-resistant SATCOM programs. So they're going to be a pilot to, to test some of this stuff out to see how we can use digital engineering better in the space uh, domain. And they're also partnering with Jake to look at what AI machine learning tools they can use with the, the different commanders in the, in, in the IC community to be able to quickly identify high interest objects and things like that for, for threat detection. Yeah, it looks like they're and the unified data library is also a big piece of that, of, of the digital piece to be able to access the data that you need. So yeah, it looks like they're off on a good start and definitely have to admire, admire the, the, the vision that, set, that was set forth there. There's a lot of insights there. But sticking with the Space Force here, defense appropriators disappointed with management of Space Force acquisition from Space News. Quote, commercial enterprises are further ahead than our military, said Calvert. We need to understand how to integrate commercial enterprise with our own programs. Too often over the past two decades, space acquisition programs have been delivered late and over budget, sometimes billions of dollars over budget, she said. The intent of establishing the Space Force was to fix these issues. So I don't know I went back into the, the appropriator's statement and they're saying stuff like, at the same time, characterizing a program or effort as modernization doesn't grant it a free pass. We will continue to scrutinize all programs for cost and performance. And I think it just feels like they're a little bit being unfair with the Space Force in terms of acquisition. I suppose there have been problems in the past and they've been trying to change, but they're they're still referencing, I think, like old programs and cost growth from old programs. And they're still evaluating it in that kind of, here's the baseline, go execute what we told you to go execute. And that's the value. (laughs) that we expect from it. And I don't know, it just, the whole thing felt a little bit unfair in terms of actually looking at what they were trying to do with acquisition and they're kind of browbeating them over not having a new space, 
service acquisition executive in charge of space. So it seemed organization and process is what they were focused on and speculation about what future programs will do rather than actually looking specifically at what was happening. What's your thought? Yeah, I thought there was two different there were two different things that I thought were going on in the hearing. There was Representative McCall, I feel like you, like you just said, was focused on beating up GPS OCX, military you know, GPS user equipment, and all the cyber stuff that went on where cyber high had massive overruns and wound up getting canceled. So I think they're, they're fair to say that there have been some fairly significant failures in terms of major cost overruns and capabilities not being delivered on time. But there's also been a ton of successes that I don't think they were given credit for. But I actually thought Representative Calvert hit, hit more on the important point. Yes, we can definitely do better on acquisition. We should definitely appoint a civilian space acquisition leader. But I think uh, Representative Calvert's point about commercial enterprises was maybe the bigger takeaway in terms of, yeah, there are so many different commercial uh, capabilities coming online that I think there's some really hard decisions ahead about what things need to stay military, what things can the military not get from the commercial sector in a much more cost-effective way, and what things do we need to actually go develop ourselves for DoD to meet a, a particular need. So I think that, I hope that's where the attention starts to migrate to is, yes, you're always going to have some of these big programs, SATCOM's always going to be the big, probably big, some big dollars for the really secure comms. You're probably always going to have some SDA missions that are, are doing a, a particular type of collection. You may have other satellites that have different effects that are going to be military unique, but there's a lot of missions that probably can be commercialized. And I hope the Congress really starts to push the Space Force and the Air Force on that point. So that's kind of what I took away a little bit. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you're talking about there, like what they're going to get from commercial and what they're going to do themselves. Yeah, there's another, we'll stick with Space Force here and, and jump down to another headline is space as a service a viable option for the DOD again from space news quote space as a service is booming sector in the industry offering remote sensing imagery radio frequency signal collection communications navigation space situational awareness and weather data among other products the current ecosystem is quote geared to an old model where 98% of the dollars are going to small set of companies doing very finite architecture and under this model the military would buy payload accommodations. Like you, you can imagine that under the ASA service, they would allow companies to, to host their own payloads. And then they would, the government would just buy services from those architectures. And I'm not really certain of where does one start, where does one end? I think there's a lot of development going on and the space is unclear. It feels like DOD has an obligation to put some money into it, even if it does feel redundant, or if, even if it does compete with an existing program, just in order to see what wins, right? And take advantage of what ends up being the winner. It doesn't feel like this is a replay of the 90s, though, where you had commercial interest in space, and then that kind of fell away. It seems like the unit economics have changed to a degree where this might be a, a sector that will stay, that has some staying power. Yeah, no, I think you're right, especially on the part about the specific capabilities there that they listed out. Yeah, I definitely think that is something that I know Space Force has already taken advantage of in some cases, but they're going to have to take more advantage of it because building a whole new, brand new constellation to get after something that already exists is just not going to be, not going to be tenable. And I don't think, I don't think Congress will, will go along with it. It's just not a cost-effective approach. But I also really liked the last part of that article I thought was great about 
buying payload accommodations because in most cases we, and, and we do host payloads, Space Force does host payloads on different assets. And so having something where you can stick a couple of payloads, maybe experimental ones, or maybe for, for missions that you need to just augment some commercial stuff that, that maybe you can get most of your needs met by commercial as a service or space as a service, but then you also want to get some particular military unique stuff. Maybe you could just put a payload on one of these infrastructure uh, as a service uh, solutions, and, and then you can meet that need. I think the biggest thing holding all of this back, and I think that's the point that Colonel Tihan was going at, was you need to have the architecture in place to support this kind of hybrid approach. And I don't think Space Force is there yet. I think they're looking at a lot of things, they're making progress, but that to me is the thing that holds this back is you need to be, if you start to pull in a bunch of commercial data, start to use a lot of commercial services, you need to be able to integrate that with all the other systems. You need to be able to get access to that data in, a, in the right way through the, all the different systems that exist today. So I think it's, it is something you have to be aware of before you jump into this. So I, I definitely under, I definitely took his point about not jumping into this right away, but setting the stage. And then once you get that architecture in place, then I think you can go full, full blast. So. Yeah. It seemed that the SDA seems very focused on the, uh, the optical satellite links and it are those, do you know, those are going to be more open or able to interoperate with commercial satellites or what's, is, is that com- separate there? Potentially the laser links. Yes. Potentially there will be constellations up there that you could just communicate with laser links. That doesn't exist at scale today, but at some point you do have to bring the data down. And so there has to be the ground station architect uh, infrastructure to, to get that, to offload that data. And there are different commercial services for that. It's, it's called commercial augmentation services is something the space force is using more. And you need to have that architecture though set up because you have to pay for that. And you bring X amount of data down and you have to know where to ship it. You may have some classification stuff associated with it. So it may need to go to a certain place, maybe be decrypted at certain points. So I, you do really have to understand all those things. Laser links gives you better, more timely access to data, but it still doesn't help because once it hits the ground, it needs to know where to go. So I think there are still some challenges to, to overcome, but yeah. we're, we're definitely closer than we ever have been. So it takes some pride there. Yeah. Gotcha. So let's move over to the world of the army. GM defense builds one-off electric ISV, that's infantry squad vehicle, to impress the army from Motor One. Quote, the all-electric concept vehicle uses the General Motors E-Create or E-Crate electronic powertrain. This consists of an electronic motor making 200 horsepower and 266 pound-foot of torque. There's also a 60 kilowatt hour, 400 volt battery and the range is estimated at 70 to 150 miles. Quote, there was no requirement to build anything of this sort. However, we wanted to show the Army customer what was possible in a short amount of time, end quote. GM Defense has a 214.3 million military contract to build the combustion-powered ISV for the Army. So this, is, this was an interesting one, and you, you kind of got to like it, but it, it also does seem to follow the trend that DOD is trying to push a lot of emphasis onto contractor funded R&D kind of to accelerate their own timelines. But this one seems a little bit different because the army went for a combustion paradise V GM won it. And now GM's trying to disrupt themselves to a degree, <laughs> but that also goes along with, I think the Biden administration's emphasis to move more towards electric 
electric powered vehicles in, in the government. I, I think overall, it's interesting and it's good to see these kind of commercial firms, GM Defense and ISV, Microsoft with the HoloLens too, and all that. These guys are, it's another area where you see disruption, not just from like the startups and the, the kind of defense, pure defense play startups, but also traditional guys just making their way back in. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it, I think they, I think that you're right that they saw the writing on the wall. They clearly had a little bit of a business case realizing the trends on for electric vehicles, but it's also like a common sense thing, because if you look at the commercial market is going heavy towards hybrids, maybe not full electric, but at least hybrids. And so it struck me that if the army just awarded a contract to build 639 fully combustion ISVs, like why wouldn't they have looked at like a hybrid where they probably could have gotten way better fuel or way better range with a hybrid than just the, uh, the pure combustion. So it makes me think that you know, maybe they need to rethink whether they exercise that option to go up to the 2000 vehicles and maybe they divert at the 639 and, and go with some kind of electric vehicle, or at least maybe talk to GM about, is there a possibility of doing some kind of hybrid? But yeah, I was curious what the range on the combustion, there were two pieces that I would have liked to know. Yeah. Like the range on the combustion powered one, is that close to the, the 120 mile, was it 150 miles? It's gotta and be much also, more, right? Like, yeah. And it then, doesn't sound like 150 miles ain't, ain't all that far. Not all, it's not all that far. So probably not, but then also what was the recharge rate for that 40 uh, volt battery? What would it take to recharge it? So I feel like there's a, there's some details in there that might need to be ironed out if, to make this really attractive to the army. But yeah, my head immediately went to, why not do a hybrid? Let's kind of stick with these, these guys, the new or the commercial firms making their way back in. HoloLens 2 headset will be modeled for Army's future acquisitions. That's from FedScoop. Quote, the program shattered the usual multi-year, even multi-decade timeline for fielding major Army acquisition programs, taking just 28 months to go from prototype to purchase, largely thanks to a novel structure of embedding soldiers in the design process, McConville said. So I think I still don't know enough about about this program. Some people still have their trepidations and they're touting it almost like it's this, they're, they're, it's almost a $29 billion program, but it, it's, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily the same as some of these major, you know, like FVL or OMFV, some of these types of programs, but they were able to find a commercial provider with dual use technology, scale something up pretty quick and get it out. I guess I'll, I'll be interested to see like, how much of that is really owned by Microsoft and are they going to be the total responsibility owners of this program or how open will that be for other firms? Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Shield AI kind of has some applications that are riding on it. I'm sure the army must be thinking pretty heavily about making that open for a lot of providers to bring in their own application. Yeah. I, mean, I think you have to give this one credit in terms of if we had started this from scratch with without looking at the commercial solutions, we probably, by the, the fact that this has already been fielded, some, some level of quantities have already been fielded. If we had started from scratch, we probably would barely be out of the AOA phase. So I think you do have to <laughs> give credit for the, for the fact that they were able to get this awarded, get, get this tested too. Cause they really, my understanding of this is they actually did go through quite a few iterations with the soldier center design center. And so they they really did get a lot of feedback from users on, is this right? Does this fit right? Is this all those kind of details, those user details. And then I think where the jury is still out on this is that 
the goggles seem great. All the, the architecture, the software approach, all, everything seems to be the right, what we've always been talking about. But I think having Microsoft be as integrated in all of that, I think is where the jury's still out is, do they, do they resist bringing in a lot of different vendors if it starts to reduce the development that they, they can do? Or how do they handle IP that is uniquely Microsoft if they start to see their, the business case not become as compelling as it is right now because of maybe trying to introduce competition. So I, th- I think that's, I think there's still a test case out on that. So I think that's one to watch. And I think one of the things I think the army is also stoked on is that they use middle tier of acquisition to, to get this out. And they also use other transactions authorities. And I'm not sure. I don't think they actually are using other transactions for the production. I'm not sure if they're going to transition that, but yeah, I think I always go back and forth though on to what degree the government should quote unquote, own the technical baseline. Mm -hmm. Here, it seems like they're going more for outsourcing to Microsoft a lot of that responsibility rather than getting in the middle of the integration. Because, you know, not only does Microsoft have the hardware there, they're also, they also have the cloud and probably a lot of, I think you could only probably get there in 28 months by putting that in the hands of Microsoft and and letting them do what they thought was right and build the best product. But Would it have been better if they slowed it down, got in the middle and tried to disaggregate that to keep their options open in the future to swap in or out? I just kind of feel like this is one of the things where it makes sense to go potentially that model where you provide the contractor more of the responsibility, but maybe that's not right. Maybe so. I guess no, that, it could be right. We'll, be, we'll wait yeah. to see. I would like to hear what the driving theories are behind that on the technical baseline, because there seems to be a lot of attributes of, okay, you might want to do it here but not here. And what are those margins of of decision-making? I feel like there needs to be some kind of clarity around that. Now, owning the technical baseline is a loaded term. So maybe we need to think of the better term for that, but that gets at after what we were after. But again, I've asked, I think people are excited about it and we'll see how they transition that into the field. Yeah. Yeah. This is one to probably like to look at a year or two from now. And then see if the uh, the messaging is the same. Yeah. So from upbeat to downbeat, Honeywell find millions <laughs> over exporting sensitive info on Ivan Moore to China from the drive. Quote, Honeywell ultimately identified 71 ITAR, that's uh, International Trade and Arms Regulation. Something close oh, to oh, yeah. Traffic and arms. arms. I always get the T wrong there. International Traffic and Arms Regulation controlled drawings. That between July 2011 and October 2015 had explored without authorization and disclosure it voluntarily made in 2016. Two years later, the firm acknowledged a second set of an unapproved exports. So here is uh, Honeywell kind of making their statement on this issue. The issues Honeywell reported involved technology that was assessed as having no impact on national security and is commercially available throughout the world, end quote, the company said in a statement. Quote, no detailed manufacturing or engineering expertise was shared. So I think the, the company was fined about $13 million, if I'm not wrong. It wasn't like a, a bank breaker. But it's interesting to, to hear this one. And I feel like you don't hear these come out in the, the media all that often. But I have to, you have to look at these companies and they want to do business with China. And this is... ITAR especially is one of those things that's going to close you down on a lot of things. And I'm not really sure to what degree this was important or not. So any views? 
Yeah, I guess some of it I almost needed to get more details on. Some of it said that the drawings had engineering prints showing layouts, dimensions, and geometries for manufacturing castings, finished parts for multiple aircraft, electronics, gas turbine engines. Yeah, it's like you have to dig in the details there to see see like specifically what it, what was how sensitive that was. But yeah, it I feels think, pretty detailed, I, right? No detailed manufacturing or engineering expert. Yeah, maybe it was very basic stuff that like you can go to a casting place and get a, a lot of things done without with their with the knowledge that those experts have. So maybe maybe it wasn't anything that like any kind of titanium caster or something wouldn't know. I don't <laughs> I couldn't say, but the one thing that did stick out to me, Eric, is that to me, the thing that I took away is, are, do we, did, did too many things fall under ITAR? Is it, one, is it a case where so we have characterized like as an umbrella, every single little tiny military engineering-ish kind of thing as ITAR, even if it's something you could find in a basic engineering manual somewhere. Like, I, I think this goes to Bill Greenwald's paper about trying to get more allies involved with, with having joint R&D or joint production agreements and, and not being able to do it because the ITAR rules are so restrictive. So it's, this strikes me as one of those things where if you try to protect everything, you're essentially protecting nothing. And so hopefully this kind of thing will start to drive a discussion about what things really need to be protected. Is there a time limit on them? Like security clearance stuff, it's 25 years. Is there a time limit where you go, yeah, this stuff isn't ITAR anymore. This is just general engineering knowledge in, in almost any country in the world would know this. So I don't know. That's kind of what I took away from it. Maybe a little different take, but. I think that's right. I tend to believe them in saying it is commercially available throughout the world. Maybe some of these things, it's a tough measure though, because if it is, if other countries do know that, then you, you have to let American companies compete. Otherwise you're just like hamstringing them and, and potentially putting them further behind. So yeah. I just don't, I don't really know what a reporting mechanism looks like because that takes kind of contextual knowledge about what's going on in the industry, right? It's like, yeah, DeSalt was ready to bid on that to China if I wasn't. Okay, well, screw it. You shouldn't be punished. Now, detailed engineering, relatively like specific things about the FU, I don't believe that's right, widely available or commercially available if it's like a specific part that's built for the F-35. I'm sure Lockheed tried to use as, as much commercially available stuff as possible on, on those jets. But they were also hacked. They had a they had a pretty significant hack a number of years ago that revealed a ton of stuff on those aircraft. So I don't know if, if Honeywell was playing a little bit loose with that, that some of that information had already been hacked and exposed. It's not their fault. If a different company got hacked and then China made that commercially available, but then why would China be asking for the information that they already had and, and <laughs> gave to everyone else? So there's a weird do loop there in, in logic, but we can move on because we got a, a lot more to go through. The government should stop threatening startups IP rights from federal news network. Zipper awardees must, actually, this is something I didn't know until this article. So Zipper awardees must report inventions to the government within two months of conception, make a written election of title within two years, and file an initial patent application within one year of written election. Many Zipper startups stumble at the first of these deadlines because it arrives at a time where they have not even hired a lawyer. Quote, I believe, and this is a Zipper recipient talking about his experience, I believe that under the Sibber program, my intellectual property would be protected, said Gat. And Eric Lofgren also believed that. But he goes, but at, as soon as I provide, I proved my technology's value, the government gave it to a large government contractor. 
even though I had multiple patents and a non-disclosure agreement with the prime contractor, there was nothing I could do. End quote. So I thought this was actually a pretty interesting article here because I didn't, I thought that cyber or cyber firms, like when they went through the cyber program, their IP was pretty protected for a pretty long period of time. And I've heard government people complain about that in, in certain respects. And now I hear that there's a lot of uh, catches to that. So what was your thoughts? Yeah. And I actually, when I read this, I, I also did not know that was a thing. And I did talk to a few folks involved with Cyber, and they said, this is not something that's done regularly on most programs in terms of formally going and, and getting, getting that IP because they didn't meet some timelines, but that maybe there is a little bit of fast and loose kind of behaviors out there with regards to once that Cyber program is being pulled in, how that how the prime takes it and how it's used and how the government protects that there, there might need to be some more guidance around that. And so this kind of strikes me as, I think the conclusion of this one was, is that particular Bay Dolak wasn't meant to apply, wasn't meant to apply to Cibber and probably should have a le- legislative proposal to update that. But maybe as part of that update, maybe we should look at in general, how do we expect Cibber intellectual property rights to be honored when they are handed off to a prime contractor to be integrated as part of the baseline of a system and it's all kind of gets mushed together. How do you keep, how do you license that? Or how do you make sure that cyber contractor gets their fair due? I think maybe that's something the government, since we're just getting into this space more, that's probably something we have to start paying attention to so we don't disincentivize that innovation. Yeah, definitely. It's just kind of- I think stories like that just put people into fear mode, especially, oh, it's not worth it because it just seems, okay, if government pays for the whole thing, they get at least GPR, they pay for none of it, at least restrictive rights. But then if the government gives me a dollar, what does that translate into? It seems like it's on that like partial funding where there seems to be a weird, not really sure about how much rights the government's really going to get out of this thing. So let's keep moving on. Next one, Russian UAV technology and loitering munitions from real clear defense. Quote, Zakharov boasted that Russian UAV development at least matches Israel's widely regarded as leading UAV producer in the world. I believe that we have not lagged behind. There is already a tendency for Israel to copy some of the things from us, Zakharov claimed. Quote, the combat drones. So now they're talking about one of the specific UAVs that the Russians developed, the Lancet. The combat drones of a potential enemy have speeds on order of 150 kilometers per hour, and the Lancet is capable of hitting them. We, with our 300 kilometer per hour dive, will do it quite calmly. So <laughs> that was pretty interesting there that they're talking about using a drone to hit, like basically be offensive against other drones, or I guess potentially defensive, right? So if I got American drones coming at me to take one out one of my targets, I can use another drone that's faster. To, to basically kinetically just take it out. Russian UAV technology, something not to mess with, right? Yeah, no, that, that was pretty fascinating about that. The fact that, what was it? In the minimum configuration, combat complex based on a loitering munition can include one or two kamikaze UAVs, a wearable launcher, launch tube or catapult in a portable control station. So yeah, the fact that these, yeah, kamikaze UAVs, I think we should have always expected Russia to get in this game, especially where they're at today with, their defense budgets generally declining because the country is a lot poor. UAVs just make so much sense for the mission set that they that they that they need for the region. So, 
Yeah, this just seems right up their alley. They're good at making aircraft. They have a lot of experience with that. They're good at munitions. And this is just, this is going to be something we're probably going to have to compete with pretty substantially on the Eastern part of Europe if we want to defend Poland or Ukraine or somebody from some some attack in the future. I don't know. They're definitely one to watch. And I'm hoping that the U.S., as we start to look at different applications for UAVs, can start to steal some of these ideas and maybe incorporate them. This might be a good way to get at some stuff that, you know, that we're maybe we're building some exotic system to counter. And maybe we could just use one of these cheap UAVs with with some kamikaze, smaller ones attached to them and, and use that instead of some expensive missile or something. We, we know DARPA and the Navy have been moving in the, that direction. And I suppose the, the Air Force is too. Remember, we're talking about they were going to use some of the DARPA uh, systems to put it on a, like a C-130 and then use, no, it was a tanker. They were looking at potentially oh, using yeah. tankers as dual using that to like host like, like a carrier version of these kinds of uh, drones, these combat drones. But moving up from expendable to attritable drones, we have uh, Kratos to deliver first XQ-58A Valkyrie production unit in a couple months to USAF from Flight Global. Quote, in February, DeMarco said as part of the 2024 quarter earnings call that he anticipated the company delivering six to 10 production aircrafts in 2021, depending on customer demand. We have a hot production line, he says. More recently, in the first quarter earnings call, we're not building prototypes. Kratos has previously said the cost of an XAA would be two to three million per unit, depending on the quantity ordered. But I guess they're moving along here. There's a number of other companies also putting their bids in for the Skyborg program of attributable drones, but it really seems like Kratos is out in front here and they're already starting to deliver production units. Yeah, no, it does. It's good to see. It's good to see that we've been talking about these like wingman drones and these more, these higher end drones, not just like the little small ISR ones are or like the Predators, but we're starting to get into the slightly more capable drones and it's good to see them leave the prototype phase and actually start to become more of a production line entity. So I think this is really encouraging. And that two to $3 million per unit is, is great, is great to, is great to see too. That shows, I think that shows the affordability, the affordability aspect of, of looking at drones for more mission sets. Yeah. They've already built in a number, like the kind of modular design there where they can swap a bunch of payloads. So yep. I guess we'll see how flexible it can become and the complement of things that it will be able to do. But the Kratos seems to have a head start, not just on like the production of that system, but also integration with the autonomy system. So first, mm-hmm. the next one here is first test flight of Skyborg's computer brain flown on UTAP-22 loyal ring wingman drone from the drive uh, the utap 22 that's also a kratos drone that they've integrated the the com- quote unquote computer brain but that's called the acs which is the autonomy core system so quote the acs demonstrated basic aviation capabilities and responded to navigational commands reacting to geofences adhering to aircraft flight envelopes and demonstrating coordinating maneuvers the term geofences refers to virtually defined boundaries around a certain area. So the ACS here is actually being developed by Lidos. So it's not like uh, Kratos is taking on the full system themselves, but Lidos has the autonomy core system that I suppose, I'm not really sure, it seems like this might be like the baseline that would be used in any of the offerers drones that they're putting into the Skyborg program. So it's interesting, not just the way that they're going, going about this, where it seems like a more disaggregated program, 
But also Kratos is again, way out in the lead. Maybe that has a lot to do with their independent research and development in this space, like putting them further ahead. One of their legacy wingman drones actually has already been integrated with the ACS. So that gives them potentially the next leg. It's interesting. They're saying they're going to deliver production units of the Valkyrie, but that hasn't been demonstrated with the the autonomy system that will make it actually useful. So I guess they're staging this, like here's going to be like a hardware platform um, that does some basic things. And then the real like software juice will be GFE, like government furnished to these guys. What have you heard how they're going to go at that? I don't know. My, my sense was that their autonomy core system was their, their piece. I maybe I'm wrong about that. I thought that was. No, I'm pretty sure it's Lidos. Okay. So that was. So that would be something that could be plugged into a different UAV. Okay. I, I might, yeah, I might need to look into that. I didn't, I was, I thought that was, uh, that was something that was unique to their platform, but yeah, if it could, that would be, that would enhance the usefulness of. Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe you are right. That is from Kratos. Maybe there's some government. No, yeah. The autonomy core system developed by Lidos is intended to be used as a control for a variety of UAVs. Last okay. December, Boeing, General Atomics and Kratos were contracted with the USAF to integrate Skyborg into UAVs and conduct a series of flight experiments. So I guess, again, it, it feels a little bit weird. Why was it makes sense to incrementally roll that out, but they're delivering Valkyries. And then I guess they've built that in such a way that they can onboard the autonomy core system after the fact. So that's really good or really bad development process. And I'm hoping it's really good. I have trust in them that they've already thought that through how all that's going to work. Yeah. And I would hope that if we have the ability to, to take that, that autonomy core system and use it for other drones that we, as part of this experimentation, by the way, this is the first time I've heard that experimentation campaign, that autonomous, attributable aircraft experimentation, AAA X campaign. That was the first time I've heard that. But if, if this is maybe just the first, the first operation of the autonomy core system, and then the next phase We'll maybe be bringing in some other systems to experiment with that as well. It does, yeah, it just seems weird that only one company would be trying it out. It seems like you might want more than one company doing the experiment, but maybe that was, maybe Kratos was the most ready to do it. And so they're waiting on others to, to get to prepare themselves. But yeah, I thought this was, I thought this was really good in terms of just demonstrating that the way that we use UAVs today in terms of the predators and some of the ISR platforms is there's a lot more, I feel like human in the loop to make sure that drones are following all the different rules or the UAVs are following all the different flight rules and they're not going places they're not supposed to go. Bringing in this more autonomous aspects um, of the system really allows you to focus whatever human is in the loop, whether it's the pilot doing the wingman thing, or if it's somebody back on a ground in a ground control station, that they can focus more on the targeting, verifying the targeting, verifying doing weapons launch or whatever. And they don't have to worry so much about making sure where the aircraft is at, if it's, if it's in the right flight envelope, or if it's going outside the, the zone or whatever, or if it has to do some maneuver to, to get away from something. So I, I don't know. I think that's really good to, to see just how far that's come and and where just the potential for it to advance so yeah i just pulled up kratos is uh 10k here but 2020 they had 27 million dollars of research and development expenses on revenues of 248 48 million so 
more than 10%. We're looking probably closer to 12%. That's a, a good deal higher than like a Lockheed or a Northrop that might be closer to a 2%. So I, th- I think that's pretty interesting that they have a higher R&D intensity, but I'm not sure exactly if how much of this work is being done on their dollar. Were they already integrating ACS in, as part of some of their research and development expenses? Is that why they're mm-hmm. ahead or did, you know, or were they just further ahead? And so the Air Force is giving him those contracts earlier. It's interesting to see what's happening there. But it's good to see more firms, more competition going on. So we will yeah. be tracking. We'll, we'll see what's going on with this one. So the next one that we got here is tough conditions and contested communications are forcing U.S. military to reinvent AI from Defense One. Quote, much of the artificial intelligence that regular consumers use every day work by connected the device to large cloud computing capabilities elsewhere. Perhaps the most prominent are digital assistants like Siri and Alexa. That kind of connectivity is often lacking where U.S. forces operate, but AI could still make a big difference in achieving the missions. So this article was not really revelatory, but I just liked it because there's definitely a lot of challenges that DOD has to face that the commercial sector won't. And it feels like a lot of the same kinds of stuff that were happening many years ago with uh, that when they went deployed, they didn't have the same connectivity to Alice and they had to figure out all these kinds of workarounds because they couldn't get back to the central hub. Now with AI, the edge computing, how and then how is that also going to relate with the cloud and everything like that to make sure that they're doing the compute that they need and, and getting the mission results? It'll be interesting. And so there's definitely some dual use aspects, but then there's going to be some challenges of a denied environment that that commercial sector usually doesn't tackle. And we'll see if where those solutions could come from. Yeah, I know it, it makes sense for SOCOM, I think, to to want to make sure they have like resilience in their systems so that if they're relying on AI, it can operate when it's maybe disconnected from, from the typical data service they might be using. I will say, I hope that this is not a big of a problem as it's being talked about here, because I think as you get, especially with the commercial space stuff that we were just talking about, as you get more low Earth orbit satellite constellations where they're providing data connectivity through multiple different systems, multiple different services that are available, hopefully special forces that maybe they are on the edge of Afghanistan or in some remote region, but if you have some satellite coverage, you can get, you can get the data you need and maybe you don't need to rely as much on this limited edge computing. You probably always want it as a backup or to some degree, but I'm hoping that we get to a point where that's not as much of a challenge. So I guess that'll be, that'll be one to watch. See how, see how successful uh, Starlink is. <laughs> we can go from there. Yeah. On that news, let's move down to a SpaceX article here. Space Force to clear refurbished Falcon 9 booster for upcoming GPS launch. Space News, quote, the upcoming launch of the fifth GPS-3 satellite known as SV-05 will be the first mission under the National Security Space Launch Program to use refurbished Falcon 9 booster. The contracts with SpaceX to launch GPS SV-5 and SV-6 in 2021 were renegotiated last year to allow reused boosters, saving the government about $64 million. I got to love this. And I actually just heard that SpaceX was going to put up a, a Starlink set of satellites on the 10th reuse of a booster. So they're, re- they're really getting that economies of scale there. And the gov- I'm actually surprised they're using it on such a high 
valued asset as a GPS space vehicle, five and six. So those are several hundred million dollars each. But on the launch cost alone, they saved $64 million on two separate launches. So that's $30 million kind of per launch that they saved. And SpaceX itself, it seems like their launch costs for government, last I remember, they're about 90 for government and 60-ish for that kind of like the commercial sector. I just, this sounds pretty good. It's, <laughs> I'm glad that SpaceX is getting DoD very used to this reuse boosters and the, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I think it was just, you have to give your hats off. I think SpaceX has really pushed the boundaries on a lot of the stuff. I think there was always uh, skepticism about how reliable would reuse, reused or used boosters, refurbished boosters, how reliable would they be? Because even the ones that came down, oftentimes my understanding was they had a lot of damage. So the refurbish process was not inconsequential in cases. So I think they just need to build up confidence and it seems like they've done it enough. Now they've shown it's like the commercial sector showing DUD how to do something right and saying, Hey, here's, it actually does work. We've proven it enough times now. You should have confidence. And so now they're finally at that point. So yeah, it's good to see. It's going to save Space Force a lot of money. So here's the next one from SpaceX Starship prototype rocket SN15 successfully lands after test flight from CNBC. Quote, Starship prototype rocket serial number 15 or SN15 flew as high as 10 kilometers or about 33,000 feet. SN15 marked the first Starship prototype that was not destroyed after a high-altitude test flight. While a small fire broke out at the base of the rocket after landing, the blaze appeared contained a few minutes later. So making progress again, SN15 here. So they've had a bunch of developments and iterations in this in these prototypes, and they're learning really fast. I think there's something uh, DOD yeah. can learn from there because <laughs> everyone always says, oh, high risk, high dollar value, high like... We can't take those types of risks, especially for these types of programs. SpaceX did it again and then again, and now maybe again. I love that. <laughs> I love just like SpaceX is providing the some of the classic examples of how this can be done. And the night, the best part about the boosters and, and launches, I don't care how you get it up there. You just have to get it up there. And the cost is what matters. And you're doing it at a much lower cost. So I have one metric. It's not like you're doing something different. And then we have to get into this qualitative debate on, oh, how much value was those new attributes? It's no, I need to get something into space. What, what's the damn cost of that thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Space launch, I think too. SpaceX started it, but I see so much. You see all these little companies that are finding different ways of getting satellites into orbit, cheaper and cheaper. And I just see the cost. I think we're going to look back five years from now and it's going to be a, just a fraction of what we're talking about today because they're just there's so much innovation on this front in terms of you know launching stuff from a drone into leo and launching small little small small rockets for for the smaller payloads that are a fraction of the cost for some of these bigger ones so i feel like the innovation space is just going to be it's just going to be really fun to watch over the next few years i'm super stoked on space elevators i would love <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know if that's 10 years away or like 100 years away no. I don't even know how you get a counterweight to even make it work, but that would be sweet. <laughs> yeah. I've talked, I talked about that with some of my friends. I, I don't, we just can't figure out how you could build it. <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly don't. And even if you do build it, then it's just how survivable is that thing? Yeah. <laughs> like what's the maintenance cost on that? <laughs> yeah. All right. Next one that we got here is uh surplus F-16 Vipers. I to replace Navy aggressor squadrons, legacy F-18 
Hornets from the drive. Many of the legacy Hornets have extremely high flight hours, making them increasingly costly to operate with stated cost per flying hour for the type pegged at $44,000. The new jets will also bring F-16s, that is, will also bring some notable enhan- enhancements to meet decreasing demand, increasing demands for more robust bandit threat training. So I just, <laughs> I kind of put this one in here because not only is the Navy now using the F-16, of course, it's not going to be on carriers, but just as the aggressors, but $44,000 for an F-18 Hornet, darn, that's more than an F-35A is being priced at, or at least what they're saying for the cost per flying hour for an F these days. So <laughs> that's pretty expensive there, it seems like. And of course, the Navy has different ways of their VAMOS systems tracking these things than the Air Force and AFTOC does. But still, I was pretty surprised at $44,000 an hour. Yeah, no, that that is crazy, especially the F-16 says, uh, the public information is that it's closer to the 8000 So. Yeah, when you start oh, really? to compare. Yeah, so when people you start kept compare- saying like sixteen to maybe twenty, like it's the okay. usual thing. But 8, I was looking 000- at a couple of different things. I couldn't. Eight thousand was being bandied around, but maybe the higher number is is more accurate. But yeah, even if it was twenty, that definitely is a pretty compelling business case for the Navy. If you have yeah, fifty percent of your costs can be reduced. Yeah. Next one we got here. Let's just stick with the aircraft. These carrier variant is finally going to see popular mechanics. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But I thought this was a, there was a very interesting point here on the F-35 at sea. Quote, the Osprey, which is, a, is the only aircraft capable of carrying the F-5 turbofan engine from shore to ship. So it was essential for the Pentagon to acquire a new carrier transport to go along with F. Otherwise, the carrier would have had to sail from the outset with spare engines embarked, taking up much needed space on the ship's store section. I guess two quick points. One is there's always another thing, right? It's always something else that you don't think about up front in the planning stage that ends up coming to bite you in the butt. But then also it feels very, of course, carriers have always relied on like refuel, not just refueling, but not refueling because they, they get their nuclear parts refueled uh, after many years. But in terms of resupply, it's just crazy to think about how much could a carrier be operating without some of those kinds of logistical supports? And why can't they get it from a supply ship to the carrier without an Osprey? <laughs> also, it's just a couple yeah. of interesting things. I didn't quite understand this one either, to be honest with you, because it also depends on where that ship is operating. In some locales, I don't know that an Osprey would have the range unless unless the the carrier was like docking or coming into port or something. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know quite the scenarios that, that this was envisioning, but I do know that one of the things with the carriers, especially some of the older ones, is that it was really challenging to get the F-35s to operate on board anyway, because there were just some things that just didn't work well. The, uh, the, the, basically the, what's what's it called? I'm I'm blanking on the name here, but the, the, the shield, the glass shield. Yeah. Canopy. Thank you. I don't know why. Yeah. That was such a big problem for so long. (laughs) It's just Jesus. The the canopy also has explosive devices on the sides of it. That's how, that's how it releases. And so it needs to be, it actually needed to be stored inside the, like the ammunition shelter inside the carrier where they store like missiles and stuff because of the explosive piece of it. And so they, but there wasn't room. And so that was another thing that was like driving a whole thing about like how many of those could fit in there and how limiting was that a factor for carriers and stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. It's challenging to operate on a carrier. 
And when you don't think about some of these things in advance, or you have to operate with legacy, legacy carriers, it, it really presents some challenges. So it sounds like this was one, maybe the Navy, maybe the Navy feels good about not having to carry so many engines around and they can solve some of it for, by storing them in other places around the, around the world. But yeah, interesting. I just have no idea how much the Navy actually intends to use the F-35C or whether they're just forced into it and they're looking for alternatives because it seems like they're dragging their feet a little bit. That's just my perception. Not to say that's <laughs> Navy policy. It Is feels it like because they, they've ordered the absolute minimum for as long as they could. Is that why? You... <laughs> and also they keep talking about like these alternative aircraft that they want to deploy. And they're also touting up their own NGAD. So I don't know. It just felt the F-111 all over again, except for the Navy was able to bail out early enough during the F-111. For the F-35, they had to, they've just been forced to ride it out a lot longer. If I had to guess, I'd say that their ideal scenario would be to have a few F-35s for some of the high-end missions, and but primarily rely on F-18 and whatever their new thing is. Yeah, I, I think they probably would prefer to have less of them, but yeah. Some people want more of them. More than 130 <laughs> House lawmakers pushed to ramp up F-35 by Defense News. So they're trying to get the... They want to, the letter is actually arguing that the program is mature enough to quote, continue the ramp up to full rate production when a total of 134 F-35s would be purchased each year, including 80 F-35s, 24 F-35Bs, and 30 F-35Cs. So there's been a lot of kind of negativity on the F-35 from Congress. And now they're, they're, there's a, a ton of folks that are actually pushing back and saying, we need to make sure that we're making the same buy here. Yeah, I don't, I, I think this is, I think this is probably not the right answer. It may be, it may be compelling to, given that the price tag has come down significantly on these, but I think they have to look at the block four modernization program and just how substantially different that may be in terms of the electronics, in terms of some of the upgrades, even to sensors and the hardware, the EOT system, like different things that, that may really be next gen upgrades that will drive really expensive retrofits. So I, I hope that they can make that. I hope the Air Force, uh, Navy, and Marine Corps can make the case that it doesn't make sense to ramp up right now because you really want to get that Block Four capability in there as soon as possible, and then it probably makes sense to go at a higher ramp rate if if you still need to. But yeah, I would. I tend to think this might be premature. Yeah, but I hear you though. You you can't cut it all the way down, right? <laughs> like you need to keep the production going. Oh yeah, and no, absolutely. There's gonna yeah. be there's gonna be capability coming out from it. So it's just what's the number? Is it I want a full one thousand seven hundred and whatever it is for the Air Force and for all the services, or it's not zero. It's probably not that same requirement from twenty years ago. So what's the right number? I think that's gonna be like a continual negotiating process until we see what. And I think it also depends on what other kind of alternatives come out, but well, I we'll think you will that see goes. that in the next, in the 20, in the 23 budget, this budget, this year's budget, it's not going to, it's not going to have those tough calls in it. But I think the DepSecDef has been pretty clear that the 23 budget is where they're really looking at a lot of the hard things. And that's where I think that legacy divestment discussion is going to take place. And I just, I can't see how you could have the legacy divestment discussion without talking about where are you going with F-35s? Because that just drives all of the investment, all the investment decisions because so much money is embedded in that. So if they're going to talk about buying hundreds of NGADs or buying tons of Valkyries and Skyborgs and stuff like that, and if they don't talk about F-35, it would just be a glaring hole. So I suspect we will see 
next year or about this time, there'll be some pretty interesting discussions going on. I can't wait to see what they come out with. Yeah. I think some of the success of NGAT potentially, we've heard that it might be Lockheed doing it, but if Lockheed is the one replacing their, their, they're the ones that might benefit from a drawdown of the N35, that would make it much more palatable to everybody involved, I would think. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So the next one we got here is uh, DOD expands hacker program to all publicly accessible defense information systems from the DOD itself. Quote, the program grew out of the success of Hack the Pentagon initiative that began in 2016. That initiative enabled Defense Digital Service to offer bug bounties program to engage with hackers. Since the vulnerability disclosure program's launch, hackers have submitted more than 29,000 vulnerability reports with more than 70% of them determined to be valid, officials said. So I just like this one. I think the white hat hacking is, it's good. I think there's a lot of value out of that, especially if you're making a system and then having the same people try to test the system, determine their own vulnerabilities. They're just going to be closed off from what those real threats are. And the nice thing about a lot of commercial technology as well as they deal with threats every single day. And it's from yep. different people with different perspectives and they're just going to have to close those loops. So I think I tend to agree with Nicholas Shalon that the more open source you use, the more secure it actually is because you have a ton of eyes on that. Op- so long as the open source is being supported, right? By community, yep. you have a ton of eyes on that code. And that's just always going to be more uh, resilient than some kind of obfuscated code with a couple of people and you hear these stories of it taking just like a few seconds for a hacker to get into like <laughs> admin access for a classified system. And you're just like, Jesus, what don't, what don't we know about our own vulnerabilities and the white hat hackers pay them a glob of money for finding like these huge vulnerabilities. I think that's fair. Yeah. Even the cyber community within DOD, I think has come to the conclusion that we used to fool ourselves that we could just run, run some vulnerability assessments against the system. And we would be able to detect all the vulnerabilities and be able to understand what the threat, the threat potential was. But I think we've learned enough in the last number of years that you really do need humans in the loop to really get a really good assessment, to really know if your system is secure. And so red teaming is a kind of a best practice. And, but we don't have enough red teams. There's just not, there's not enough people to, in, in DOD to just, to do all that for every system as often as it's needed, especially as we start to ramp up the amount of, uh, the frequency of releases and stuff. But yeah. Bringing in, bringing in this kind of capability is just, it's just crucial. It's like the best red team you could possibly ask for because you're incentivizing people whose job this is full time and you, who probably understand vulnerabilities the best. And so I think it's, I agree with you. Let's throw money at them and let them do a lot of the discovery for us. And we can focus on delivering capability. So let's move over to the Navy a little bit. Huntington Ingalls bullish on unmanned growth defense news. In January, HII completed the first phase of its unmanned system center of excellence with the construction of a 22,000 square foot facility in Hampton, Virginia. The center will host the assembly of hull structures for Boeing's Orca for the Navy's extra large unmanned undersea vessel UV program. A second building for unmanned systems prototyping, production, and testing is scheduled to be built by the year's end. However, amid skepticism in Congress over the Navy's ability to quickly develop new technologies, lawmakers provided $238.9 million of the $579.9 million in research and development funding the Navy requested. 
which is for the medium and the large unmanned surface vessels, which is a little bit different than the UUVs. But it's interesting, HII here going big on invet like infrastructure investments to build unmanned systems at the same time that Congress is actually slashing pretty significant. That's like nearly half of that budget request was slashed there for unmanned surface vessels. I think that they're probably right on the trajectory of where those that kind of spending will go. Though, again, we'll see what happens. Do they retire LCSs? Do they like what's going to happen with the frigate and all this type of stuff? But I'm glad to see at least that that they're making the investments. I wonder how much of that is being reimbursed or going to be allowable through overhead rates and otherwise, or how much is really coming out of their own dime. Yeah, this one strikes me a little bit that Congress is being a, a little bit short-sighted, or if not short-sighted, they're they're not looking to the future in the way that that maybe they should. Because reading in the other in the part of that article, they're they're talking about how the Navy released its unmanned campaign plan, where it, it made the point that it wanted to shift from these huge, expensive, like DDG 1000s to looking at what they could do with unmanned systems. They released that plan to Congress. And then Congress basically comes back and says, no, you need more crude ships. And so I just feel, I, I, I feel, I hope that is not, that's just an initial reaction and that, and that additional data, additional successes will, will shift that, that, that mindset. But it just seems like if we're focusing so much and there seems to be support for unmanned aerial vehicles to not do the same in the sea domain just seems short-sighted to me. So yeah, I'm hoping that this that those those facilities are they get that money eventually, maybe next year or in this, this this budget, and then they can finish that up, and then they can start to show that, wow, we can actually prototype, produce, and get these things uh, fielded, meet a bunch of requirements. So get after that 300 ship navy, and, and and do all the unsexy stuff with the unmanned capabilities, logistics, and all the things, and then we can have those are the missile cruisers and all the other real capability stuff with the crude, the crude assets in that way we're, we're divesting in, in a mix of manned and unmanned. We're, you know, going after an affordable approach. Cause I think everyone's acknowledged that the 300 ship Navy is, is this not, it's not realistic. And so maybe this is a way to get after that. So I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see. What yeah. There's just like a feeling I have that it seems like the Navy's trying to push the unmanned systems to like the larger realms relatively quickly. And maybe that's in preparation to take this wedge of large surface combatants that will be left over from as the DDGs or the 51s, at least they're, they're going to stop building those. So I wonder if the Navy's rushing to say, Hey, we have a wedge there. We want to make sure it's kind of USV or something like that to go get those dollars. But I think we'll see. So the next one we have, sticking with the Navy, U.S. Navy issues details on new offensive anti-surface warfare, Increment 2, Naval News. OASUW Inc. 2 is envisioned to be a long-range carrier-based strike, fight, strike fighter aircraft launch weapon system. That's a mouthful there. Providing ASUW anti-submarine warfare capabilities. The program is part of the Navy's long-range fires investment approach to meet the objectives of the National Defense Strategy. El Razum won the Offensive Anti-Surface Warfare Increment 1 program competition, which called for the development of a new missile for the B-1B and Super Hornet to destroy ships from standoff ranges. So here, here we go. We were talking about El Razum uh, last week, and here I, I didn't actually know that the Navy was actually going to be using them as well. So it's a kind of a joint service yeah. solution, but it started many years ago. So this was, this has been in the works for a while. I think that's, it's pretty good to hear some of these 
details coming up, it seems like the Navy has like a package of different ways of striking ships from pretty long ranges. Yeah, especially with what we talked about last week with some of the things that the Marines are working on too. Yeah, it's good to it's good to see that they'll have some capabilities to keep keep China under under threat in the South China Sea if there was an engagement and it's not just ship on ship engagement, but you have some other assets that you can do at scale or at range without keeping the forces under threat. So yeah, this seems to me to be like a great capability, a much needed capability for keeping the carriers right out of that nine dash line, like keeping them safely out to sea, but allowing the the aircraft to be able to come in and engage as necessary without being just having massive uh, casualties. So yeah, this thing, this weapon is is definitely going to be, I think, really key. So, yeah, this will be this will definitely be one to watch as as well as some of those other ones we talked about last week. I feel like we keep talking about trying to basically match Chinese capabilities or excel. But it's like, where's the? I, I want to see some sweet di- directed energy weapons that just I don't care about your guns or whatever. Like I'm going to take them out, and we're now and like our systems are now survivable again. Like I'd like to see. Yes. We, we understand what they're doing, but we have a, we have a response for that. I, I just never know how far this thing out. is it again. It's one of those things like we've been hearing about it forever. Is it still another 10 years out or 20 years or can we have it in a few years? I know the Navy has <laughs> been doing, we talked a few weeks ago about some of the things that they're trying, but I just like to hear more about the effectiveness of what those things are and what the, the game plan is. I was looking at the independent research and development report that the GAO put out. And directed energy, of course, is one of R&E's 10 emerging technology areas that they're interested in. And it had like almost zero, like nobody is spending independent research and development dollars on that thing for one reason or another. <laughs> but maybe that's an assessment of the engineering, or maybe that's just short-sightedness or what, maybe no one just thinks that there's a, a big program that will be lined up for that kind of thing. But I, I think everybody wants it. It's just what, what I've heard the last few years from senior acquisition executives is just that it's just not there. There's just like some challenges that need to be overcome for it to really be, to be useful in operations. So I feel like it's going to happen. It'll probably be one of those things where all of a sudden somebody solves it. Some really innovative contractor figures, figures out how to crack the nut. And then all of a sudden it's everyone's using it. Because they've been talking about putting it on aircraft for quite a while. Um, even the F thirty five was was it was explored, and yeah, I, I feel like it's probably it's probably on the edge. But I don't know. I still want the Navy to go after the railgun. I still feel like the railgun has more potential than directed energy. I feel like, and I feel like that that I feel like that should be their first maybe their first endeavor to do something different is let's get some rail guns out there that can just shoot these things like crazy distances. And you don't have to worry about having huge amounts of energy to generate the laser or striking some, some satellite out of space or something. I don't know. I, I worry about the laser thing. Yeah. The rail gun has been another one that's been a, a no. problem area for a long time. And that's not even <laughs> in who's spending money on rail guns besides the Navy. I, know I don't really know. know, but yeah, I, but again, with the directed energy thing, like why put it on like a ship? and overburden that chip just make it its own just like floating energy producing barge i don't understand why everything needs to be integrated into a single weapon system um, especially at that stage but I well don't maybe know. that's part of the unmanned the unmanned stuff you're talking about maybe there's one application for you there you go so we're gonna roll quickly through a couple of these remainders here that i wanted to get to first the 609th aoc the air operation center optimizes ato 
his uh, authority to operate production. First to use Kratos operationally, U.S. Air Force Central. This is the biggest systems advancement the Air Operations Center has made since it first started using a certain system in the 1990s. We've been using Kratos in beta version since December, which is the Kessel runs, basically their minimally viable product for AOC. This is just a huge win, I think. AOC had been struggling for years. Nessic went into 10.2. And I think it was 2017 timeframe that Kessel Run really started taking over some of those mission sets. They had a couple of things, in, in, including tanker, refueling, planning, as well as targeting. And I guess they brought up enough kind of applications that they can start phasing out the legacy systems. This is just really like really big news for Kessel Run and their ability to deliver on a pretty major system for that's operationally relevant. And then the ATO production, right? Getting code out to the users daily in some cases. I'm not really sure what their cadence is. It, they got the DevSecOps pipeline there. And I think this is just like a glimmer of what we're going to probably be seeing elsewhere, not necessarily with the software factory in all cases, but maybe that pipeline uh, might be something common throughout. Yeah, no, I think you're right. They set the stage for how to do software better and they're, they hadn't let up. I, I think that's one thing you really have to give that office a lot of credit for is they demonstrated, you know, something really significant. They showed a new way of doing it and they just have been scaling that since and taking on numerous other projects besides AOC, but also continuing to go after this and, and retiring TBMCS will be really, that's going to be huge for the Air Force because they've spent, they spent a lot of money on that system and so it's a legacy system. So it's not architected the way that, that you would want it. Being able to replace that with something that can be easily upgraded using DevSecOps and all those new methodologies is, is going to be a really important capability. So great to see progress there. Yeah. Here's a fun one. Inspector General launching evaluation to Pentagon's action with UFOs, the, de the debrief. Quote, in the mid-August 2020, the Pentagon formally acknowledged that they had established a task force looking into UAP, or Unmanned Aerial Phenomena. The IG's office decision to launch the evaluation was prompted by complaints from congressional leadership regarding the DOD's handling of the UAP topic. So I'm pretty stoked. I want to see what comes out of this. I, I feel there's a low probability chance of anything like concrete or anything like that, but lots of speculations uh, are going around. And I think this will be something that we're tracking. One, one of my sponsors that actually got me on the Pentagon to George Mason and Tyler Cowen, his speculation was like, if there were aliens and the government did know about it, or if there were aliens that were visiting Earth, wouldn't a good strategy be to first make yourself known to the military and start leaking things very slowly as they socialize so it doesn't create like this big fear fest once like everyone starts <laughs> realizing what's happening? I'm like, sure. But I, I just think this is like a funny line here of all this kind of UFO stuff. And I'll just be interested to see what comes, comes out of these investigations. I'm sure nothing to scratch my itch, but it's just funny to, to think about. I think you do have to, yeah, you have to at least acknowledge that. Remember back to the blue book days where they would basically say absolutely nothing, at least like some of those videos that, that, that got out there, like the Navy's encounters with some of these yeah. objects that just really can't be explained. At least they acknowledged that those were authentic videos. I took that as like a big first step towards maybe they're not going to open up area 51 and shows everything, but at least acknowledging that those videos were, were not fake or just saying, yo, we can't confirm that was a real video. I took some, 
I guess I took some. We already knew because there's there's tons of pilots just talking about it freely <laughs> that were like Navy pilots. And it was just like, yeah. but it still feels weird. It's okay, here's a blob. Okay, it moved really fast. And I guess physicists can look at the frames and say, that was moving at 10,000 miles an hour, like, and had zero to 10,000 mile an hour in this much time. And that's impossible. There's pilots still, definitely did seem to freak out though. Yeah. They, those were experienced like pilots and they... I'm sure they've seen a lot of like really fast moving objects doing fighter engagements and exercises and stuff. And, and they were to see the reaction about, oh, oh my God, like freaking out about it definitely made it seem like there might be something there, but yeah. That's what, that's the speculation. The Navy's uh, warp drive or their hyperdrive effort was really coming from aliens because they, <laughs> they filed that patent and everyone's what the hell is this? This can't be real. And then the guy from O&R actually like calls up the patent office. No, this warp drive is real. All right, so let's uh, wrap up with the last one here. DoD deflects CSO fast track buying powers for consulting services. And CSO, of course, is commercial solutions openings. This is from Bloomberg government. Depending on the outcome of the Space Force change management program, defense agencies could consider pursuing CSOs to deliver innovation in other professional service domains, such as financial management, human resources management, risk management, or supply chain management. So commercial solutions opening, for those who don't know, it's a solicitation procedure. Like anybody can basically bid to these open or narrow topics. It doesn't really matter how the topic is structured, but it provides like a different kind of solicitation method where you can have merit-based awards. You can make many different awards to multiple contractors and you can, you know, price them differently and you can trade them off against each other rather than using source selection evaluation factors, which are very narrowly defined. So there's a lot of goodness to CSOs. I just really would love to see them expand their use. Our friend Bill Greenwald made them applicable to all R&D. So all research and development is considered commercial, but so are these professional services as well. So it seems an ever-increasing number of, I want to say assets or acquisition types or procurement types are actually falling into the CSO realm and hopefully it can take over a significant part of, of acquisition. Yeah, I, I like to see innovation. And if, if the CSO, since they, they said it hadn't been used for professional services, if it was being used to like, how do we, how do we like develop or manufacture this thing faster? Or how can we improve AI, pro, AI integration or something? I, I would be on board with this, but I have to admit that when I see it being used for change management services. And I'm just envisioning like McKinsey and Deloitte and Accenture, just ginning out these prod, these studies about using their like commercial terminology and like in the perfect world, here's how you would do things. And everyone like admires this thing, but it's like impossible to implement. I do fear like spending a ton of money for change management and using CSO to do it. I don't know. It doesn't thrill me. So I'm hoping I'm wrong and something really good comes out of this, but, but you can put me. out a solicit, a CSO. Well, I guess it's, I'll be interested to see because they, you can have a CSO just run for a long time, years, that's just like broad and open. And then you might just get a bunch of good idea fairies, something like that. That's not actually addressing the need, but they can also make CSOs that are pretty specified to any kind of solution that they wanted or yeah. that include some of those requirements. But I suppose the thing about service, like consulting services is that it should be relatively open-ended. So I could just talk with some of these guys and be like, oh, they know what my needs are, or they understand me. I'm going to put them on, on, on a short duration contract and then kick them off if I don't like them. So yeah. I, there, there's some kind of flexibility 
I guess it depends on how disciplined is the acquisition shop. Because if they have the technical expertise and they're pretty disciplined, it seems like a good, I, I think it goes with for everything with the CSO though. Because if they're bumbling around, they don't know what they're doing, then I want to take all that out of their hands and just have these really tightly specified requirements and go the old way. So I think it's like a movement into the culture of acquisition as well. Yep, hope so. But I'm glad you're skeptical because yeah, you very well might be right there. And so that's a good place to wrap for this week's acquisition headlines. So Matt McGregor, thanks for joining me. And until next week. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.